Chapter 3 of The Amber Spyglass, Scavengers, takes its epigraph from a Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem, The Knight's Tomb. Where is the grave of Sir Arthur O'Kellan? Where may the grave of that good man be? By the side of a spring, on the breast of Helvellyn, under the twigs of a young birch tree. The oak that in summer was sweet to hear and rustled its leaves in the fall of the year and whistled and roared in the winter alone is gone, and the birch in its stead is grown. The knight's bones are dust, and his good sword rust. His soul is with the saints, I trust. The lines that are taken are those three jingly rhyming lines at the end of the poem, abruptly concluding what looked like it might have shaped up to be a kind of sonnet. At the birch replacing the oak. Anyway, the word dust is clearly significant there, and we'll see in what ways the night corresponds with the noble death of Lee Scoresby, or perhaps our armored character, Yorick Birnison. I'll have to wait and see. It's actually Serafina Pecola whose perspective opens the chapter. She's weeping in rage, fear, and remorse. She's heartsick at the melting of the ice. And in that way, this is a kind of recap of her journey at the start of the subtle knife. She's not going home this time, but further north to Svalbard. There's only a little snow there, and nature is overturned everywhere. It's worth remembering. Pullman is writing this in the context of his own awakening to the gravity of climate change. He's fired, as ever, by the politics of his fiction. She finds Yorick Birnison hunting walrus without his normal camouflage, out of his element. And there's three foxes watching with her and with us, scavengers of the title. Serafina must face her remorse. She lays her weapons down. And with Yorick, we wonder, why is she observing this formality when she never stood on ceremony before with him? She failed his comrade, Lee Scoresby, not knowing that he called her too late to have done anything for him. Remember, the flower she'd given him was only in his hand at the very end of his strength. And she doesn't know either why he was there holding off the Muscovites when it looked like he might have escaped. She doesn't conjecture that it might have had to do with Stanislaus Grimmin as they were in that other world. She doesn't realize that by bringing the young witch Yutukaminen along, she played into the fate laid out for Grimmin and Lee Scoresby, just as Lyra, bringing Roger along, played into the first book's fatal ending, and led us to these ghostly endings of each chapter so far. Now, it's no coincidence that this uh, death and what comes after theme is playing into the perhaps most important thread of this current story in ways we, too, as readers, don't fully understand yet. 
So Serafina tells Yorick as much as she can, sums up the events thus far. Her going to look for him, and the breach, and the melting, and Ruta Scotty with her angels. She says she's laid a spell to preserve the body until Yorick goes and finds him. But she's troubled mostly because of what she told him about fate and about the war Lee Scoresby was involved in for Lyra's sake. She's troubled mostly about the child. She left her with her sisters, where she should have been safe. Serafina directs Yorick how to go, where the body is, and he says he'll go and then head south, seeking ice for his people. They've chartered a ship, so we begin to see how this all might contrive to bring the bear and Will and Lyra back together again. Following the conversation as it goes along, we see the first thing that the foxes scavenge is language. They can only speak in the present tense. They only retain statements in a actual sense. That is, they're unable to tell stories properly. As far as Pullman's concerned, he likes to inveigh against present tense narration in books. The present tense is also, of course, the language in which English teachers traditionally instruct us to discuss literature. It's a way of talking about a story as if it's happening, and a way of talking about it rather than telling a story. Moreover, the foxes mostly tell lies, scavenged secondhand from them, in turn, by the credulous cliff ghasts. So we have scavengers of scavengers now. This is a distorted image of the sort of storytelling that we'll see the ghosts and Lyra have to do with the harpies later on. Now, with these conversations being scavenged, those later will be given freely. The plan to find the Egyptians is going to take place entirely off stage, and we hear that Yorick approves of it as he goes swimming and thinking into a new world. He ignores the heat of the day, though it won't be possible to ignore it forever, climate change. There's charcoal dust that blackens him, and this way we have a kind of manifestation of the church's image of what dust does to grown-ups. Covers, collects, darkens. He notices the change in the taste of the water, and that tells him he's in a new world. Um, saw that Rudiscotti could tell something about the quality of the air, and Will, of course, can tell something about the quality of resonance, even before he goes from world to world. So, the body senses and knows in ways that the mind has to catch up with here. Yorick finds nothing to use among the wreckage of the Zeppelin. It's a worthless sort of sky iron, too flimsy to be made into anything worthwhile. And he sees that the dry bones of the soldiers have been picked clean. 
so more scavengers. He relentlessly moves up the slope, even as the the stones slide back down under him. And when he comes to the resting place of his comrade, there's a purple saxifrage, uh, a rock breaker, literally, a fitting plant for that chipped boulder. The blood that was on Lee has dispersed, and though his face is not peaceful, it looks like he knows he was successful. Now, out of respect, we're told, Yorick accepts his friend's last gift, this feast, the first meal he's had for days, probably since that walrus. The hunger and the satisfaction become an image of how stories nourish us, with his memory of Lyra Silvertongue crossing the snow bridge, of which alliances of the surpassingly strange fact of the new world, the fate of this child and his ice home citadel, that Lee had told him of mountains too high for a balloon that are crowned with snow and ice. All this corresponds with parallels Yorick's consumption of his friend's body. And in so doing, a desire for vengeance possessed the bear's heart. It will keep him restless. It's a kind of spell, almost the opposite of the ritual of eating Yofor's heart, which had provided closure after that combat. His eating of Lee Scoresby's body will keep him restless. And here, at the end of the ritual feast, Yorick drops down the flower on the remains, as humans do, I'm told. And that breaks the spell. After Yorick having eaten most of it, the remains will nourish a dozen different kinds of life. And this is yet another positive spin on the scavenging theme. From there, like Will, Yorick begins to head south. The scene shifts briefly to the cliff ghasts and their ghastly feast of the fox. They liked fox when they could catch it, and before they ate, they let it talk. Now, I don't think that there's any great likelihood that Pullman is riffing on the famous talking fox from the Fellowship of the Ring, but it's possible, I guess. I think the more immediate parallels are those that we've seen so far with this idea of scavengers and stories, and then the parallel we saw last week, too, with uh, Mrs. Coulter's fox fur coat, possibly, possibly. Anyway, these cliff guests like to let it talk because they laugh at its fragmentary news. And their conversation here is punctuated by the shrill laughter of the ghasts. About the bears going south, the fox swears and promises this is so, as absurd as it seems. He heard of some flying things, of crystal treasure, or he saw it. It's unclear whether he scavenged this from a conversation or seen it firsthand. We'll see that this actually turns out to be true, but only much later when this particular cliff guest, or someone it's told, sees a flying crystal treasure 
across the battlefield. The witch is sorry, the balloon man dead. At this point, the cliff ghasts have had enough of these lies. They wrench off the fox's head. They fight one another for the entrails. We have another brief scene shift now back to the world of the dead. Lyra is certain that they will come. And we're unsure where she thinks she might be dreaming. And there's more ghosts now, dozens, hundreds of them, peering close and listening. More scavengers. She hopes she ain't dead. There's nowhere to hide. That is, Mrs. Coulter, if she's dead, that would remove the one good thing Roger thinks about being dead, that Mrs. Coulter isn't, but she will be one day. Lyra thinks that Mrs. Coulter is somewhere near. She trails off, saying there's something she can't do. All right, that brings us to chapter four, Ama and the Bats. The epigraph here is from Emily Dickinson, and she's the first female poet selected for an epigraph. It comes from her poem labeled J369 by the editors, She Lay As If At Play. She lay as if at play, her life had leaped away, intending to return, but not so soon. Her merry arms half dropped, as if for lull of sport, an instant had forgot the trick to start. Her dancing eyes ajar, as if their owner were still sparkling through for fun at you. Her morning at the door, devising, I am sure, to force her sleep so light, so deep. It's another rhyming poem, another poem about Lyra, it seems, and another poem that has a theme of death or something like it. This one brings us back into the story of Mrs. Coulter. And uh, Ama has believed, credulous like a benevolent cliff cast, that story of the sleeping spell. She's been won over by Mrs. Coulter's care for her daughter. So now she almost worships them and hopes that she'll hear other wonderful tales. That makes Mrs. Coulter a lot like Lyra among her followers back in Jordan or with the Egyptians. It points towards Pullman's own conflating of religious devotion and love of story. Amma accepts it would not be allowed again for her to actually see the sleeper, and yet during her chores she thought incessantly. She's free then to imagine to, that is, contribute to the story. With honey bread, that combination of the everyday and the special, she goes to consult the healer, Padzin Tulku, who saved them from the white fever. I think again about that terrible whiteness of Bolvanger. The healer's bat demon in the dimness is the first bat we should notice here. It reminds me of Lyra's meeting with Santelia 
in the bear's prison on Svalbard. And Amma's first request is like Lyra's in that same situation, to be this man's student. It's a request made not entirely in earnest, but in craft. So, as she expects, he will provide medicine, but not teach his secrets. Amma feels very clever about changing the patient to a male in case he'd heard of the girl, which only shows, I think, how little subtlety she really has. Pazintuku would like to see the patient and inquire into the planets, um, but maybe he also is just putting on a front. The movements of his bat apparently indicate the different ingredients that he should use for this healing uh, medicine. And he follows those movements like Lyra follows the movement of the hands of the alethiometer. Then combines them in a mortar, chants a spell, and writes characters on a sheet of paper folded around it. He instructs Amma to brush that into the girl's nostrils. Oh, not too much or she'll choke using the softest of brushes. How much of this business is essential and how much of it is put on to impress her is not clear, but the healer tips his hand that he knew she was lying the whole time before she leaves. He says, next time, tell the whole truth. Amma is bursting to tell Mrs. Coulter about her contribution to the story. She's eager to wake Lyra. She imagines, not least of all, that they could be friends. Amma is about to cross over that space between the imagined and the real. But as she is, she sees the space where Mrs. Coulter should be is empty. Lyra is still there. And like a musical note, that quality of resonance that Will noticed, an idea comes to her to wake her without Mrs. Coulter's help. But the reality is not quite as she imagined it. The story is not entirely true. The feeling that comes upon Amma, seeing the disconnect between the reality and the fiction, is a guilt, as if it's transferred to her from Mrs. Coulter, who properly should be feeling it for deceiving her. Amma was spying, and now she's trapped, just like Lyra in the retiring room, or Will behind the couch at Sir Charles's house. Cramped there in her hiding place, Amma wishes that she'd stayed out. It's too late. Her realization of the truth is rather horrible. As the girl Lyra is stirring, the woman, Mrs. Coulter, takes no notice. Amma can't understand the words. Roger, Serafina, Will, help. She doesn't want to sleep. But the sense of it is clear. After washing and forcing Lyra's head back, I was calling now for Yorick, and as the monkey grips Pan, even as he changes faster than she's ever seen, and ends up a porcupine and leaves some quills in the skin of the monkey, Mrs. Coulter slaps her daughter, forces her to swallow or choke on the sleeping draft. Emma wishes she could close her ears, but the sounds are ones we can only imagine, maybe. Uh, she sinks into a drugged, deceitful sleep.
at uh, as if at play sounds pretty bitter at this point. At the end, there's a white flash at her throat, thinking of that white fever again. Such a strange, uh, insistent imagery here. And I wonder too about <laughs> what happens if a demon leaves some feathers or say porcupine quills um, out of its body. Um, does it become smaller the next time it changes or does it make up for it somehow? I, I, I don't know. Um, we're told that Mrs. Coulter is singing baby songs and it's clear she didn't know the words. It's just nonsense syllables, a sweet voice mouthing gibberish. Powerful line. So we have a character whose perspective is that of a, a foreign language, and yet she can even tell that Mrs. Coulter doesn't know what she's even saying. It's just the sound that matters. And then she does another curious thing. She trims Lyra's hair and places the curl into a locket. <laughs> to Ama, this is clear. She's going to work some further magic with it. But to the reader, it's very curious indeed, not least because we don't know what it implies about Mrs. Coulter's feelings towards her daughter at this point. She even held it to her lips. Strange. Um, another horrible image to close this scene. Uh, the monkey demon catches a bat. It cries out in a needle-thin voice, rips it apart with white strings of sinew. Crack, snap. Dismembers it limb by limb. Wow, the woman drinks chocolate. Not chocolate, apparently. So, once they fall asleep too, Ama tiptoes past, and once she's out in the open with her owl demon, she's calmed a bit. They lied. Her demon's name is Kulang and tells her, don't tell, right? It'll only make more trouble, but that they should wake her up, just like they had the idea to do in the first place. Now it had been said, and they had the medicine and knew how to use it. The medicine for waking someone up, um, it does sound like the sort of thing you'd have to be very careful about using properly. Um, and this blends very neatly into Lyra's words in her dream. The thing she couldn't do, that she left off, trailed off saying, and this passage of the story interrupted, she can't wake up. She can't see she thinks that Mrs. Coulter is doing something to hurt her. She's frightened. She thinks she'll go mad. And at this point, they try to hold one another, to comfort each other, and pass right through. Um, she's trying to wake up. She's afraid of sleeping all her life and then dying. And clearly, I think, we're supposed to understand sleeping has a kind of metaphorical quality here as awakening would too, in a sense of enlightenment even. She wants to be, if just for an hour, properly alive and awake. That powerful word, proper. Um, 
she's not sure if she'll, or rather, Roger isn't sure if she'll think this is real or not when she does wake up. So he, again, is a little worried, doesn't have quite the confidence that Lyra does, but she says that Will is going to help. She swears that he needs to trust her. Um, He'll think it was only just a dream. She says, no. And trailing off there. Um, Sure enough, our next chapters will get to meet up again with Will and that ellipses that uh, is full of other unexpected help. So, shorter episode this time, about a couple of shorter chapters. Um, At least uh, got a chance to think a little bit more about these curious poems and the strange behavior of Mrs. Coulter. Um, I appreciate your time, and thanks again for listening. Till next time, take care.